The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. And we see these incidents periodically. Two countries disagree over ownership of, of usually a maritime territory. And one country tries to explore for oil. The other country tries to block it from exploring from oil. These tensions flare up. There's a lot of very alarmist reporting saying, oh, God, we're going to have an oil war. And then everything calms down because both governments basically say, this is not worth it. We are putting a lid on this. So if you think of confrontations that are related to oil and gas in the South China Sea these days, these are all what I would call oil spats. I'm David Priest, publisher of Lawfare, and this is the Lawfare Podcast, May 16th, 2022. During the past couple of months since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, there have been several claims that Russia was invading its neighbor to seize its oil and gas resources. And even in the cases where pundits were claiming that Russia was not doing this, they would often phrase it as, this is not yet another oil war. But do oil wars happen at all? I thought it was important to sit down with the woman who has literally written the book on this, Emily Meyerding, assistant professor at the Naval Postgraduate School in Monterey, California. She has argued that countries do not launch major conflicts to acquire hydrocarbon resources, because the costs of foreign invasion, territorial occupation, international retaliation, and damage to oil company relations deter even the most powerful countries from doing so. We talked about the myth of oil wars, we talked about the logic why they will not happen, and why it is that the Russian invasion of Ukraine probably has very little to do with hydrocarbons at all. It's the Lawfare Podcast, May 16th, Oil Wars in Myth and Reality with Emily Meyerding. In recent weeks, we have seen some claims around the Russian invasion of Ukraine that point towards resource issues being crucial and sometimes pointing towards Ukrainian oil and gas being at the center of it. The Wall Street Journal had an opinion piece going back a few weeks now saying that Putin's Ukraine invasion is about energy and natural resources and claiming that it was about an oil and gas grab, and even articles that have not pointed to the conflict as an oil war. Like The Guardian back in February, they teed it up as, is this really another war over fossil fuels? That does raise the question of whether there are, in fact, wars over fossil fuels. It seems like it. We have a myth 
about oil wars and we hear about it on television all the time, but it would be nice to talk to somebody who has researched the heck out of the oil wars arguments and found some pretty interesting results. Emily, you're that person. Do you want to explain your background as a political scientist who studied this and on whose behalf you're speaking? Sure. Uh, I should first say that I'm speaking purely on my own behalf. My views are my own. They don't represent the views of the U.S. Navy or the Department of Defense. Got it. And you choose to look at this from a, a traditional political science, international relations perspective. And I want to get into your methodology a little bit later. But first off, just tell us, before we apply your expertise to the Russia-Ukraine issue, what is the fundamental claim about the existence of oil wars? Well, I think there's this common perception that countries will go to war over oil resources. Uh, And in particular, that they'll go to war in order to seize other countries' oil resources. They may need these oil resources for their national defense. They may want to acquire these resources as a source of wealth. But there's this idea that somehow the presence of oil resources encourages countries to engage in international aggression in order to grab that oil. And that makes sense at some level, at least a superficial level, because you know we all remember or remember stories about the oil embargo in the early 70s and the conflict all around it the the caspian great game there's there's always the the phrase being uttered often by politicians about petroleum independence which implies some kind of security threat involving the the oil itself but you're not so sure about that what what are the paths that people who do posit the existence of oil wars, what are the two paths that they go down to explain why they happen? Well, just to set up that discussion, I agree that the idea of oil wars makes a lot of sense. If you control a resource, then theoretically you should be more energy secure. Uh, And actually, when I started this project, I assumed that countries launched wars to grab oil resources. Sure. And so I was just interested in when does this happen? Under what circumstances, etc.? But in fact, it happens a lot less than we think. So one of the puzzles that I wanted to address in this research was, why do we believe in this? Why do we find the idea that countries would initiate acts of international aggression to grab foreign oil resources? Why mm-hmm. do we find that so compelling? And what I argue in my book is that Oil wars exist at this interesting intersection of two widespread beliefs about the causes of international conflict. And in the book, I describe those as the Mad Max myth and the El Dorado myth. And the first of these, Mad Max, you're familiar with the movies, but this is the idea that countries and individuals need resources. They need them in order to survive. And if they don't have access to them, they'll die, their country will collapse, etc. The El Dorado myth says that resources are a source of enormous wealth. Mm -hmm. And so countries want to greedily acquire these resources in order to benefit themselves, in order to increase their, their national income. Okay. Let's talk a bit about Mad Max before we jump too much into El Dorado. So the Mad Max myth, and by the way, you referenced your book, and I do want to highlight for everyone that a couple of years ago now, 
You published The Oil Wars Myth, Petroleum and the Causes of International Conflict, which deals with a whole lot of these, these issues. So the, the Mad Max pathway to an oil war really has foundations uh, both in political thought like Malthusian arguments and Charles Darwin, but then also is reflected in pop culture quite a bit. Talk, talk about both of those just a little bit. Right. So the first thinker that we generally associate with this line of thought is Thomas Malthus, an English political economist and theologian, who argued that the pace of population growth would inevitably outstrip food supplies. And as a result, there would be famine, there would be conflict, there would be death, there would be war. This idea is picked up by Charles Darwin, who actually credits Malthus with giving him the mechanism that explains natural selection, that it is competition for resources, for scarce resources that drives evolution. Right. And this idea has continued to be picked up by geopolitical thinkers, picked up by international relations scholars, and also picked up in popular culture. In addition to Mad Max, we've seen plenty of stories about various groups or individuals fighting each other over scarce resources. And those may be oil resources, they may be water resources, basically any kind of scarce resource that's necessary for human life, people mm-hmm. and countries are believed to fight over them. Right. And, and we see manifestations of that in you know, a lot of sci-fi films having to do with the Earth's supply of resources collapsing, not necessarily oil, but Interstellar had that as a foundation, as I recall. And Wally, of course, the whole the whole movie is built around the idea of resource scarcity and having having to go somewhere else. So this obviously permeates a lot of our thinking in general, so that when we hear about an oil war, it it just makes sense. But it's not the only way. You mentioned the El Dorado myth. So how how does that El Dorado myth play out in public consciousness? I think that El Dorado is this idea. So El Dorado, a myth associated with the conquistadors, uh, this mythical individual or a mythical city made out of gold. And the idea is that when confronted with great wealth, people will just do extraordinary things, including resorting to intense violence in order to try to acquire this resource. So when we're talking about gold, we hear about things like gold fever during a gold rush. But this logic of this almost pathological pursuit of resources and of intense wealth, we see that also applied to oil, uh, that individuals or countries will attempt to maximize their control over oil resources in order to bring great wealth to themselves. Uh, If you think of the movie There Will Be Blood, we see this dynamic. If you think of uh, Treasures of Sierra Madre, that the possibility of great wealth leads to terrible behavior. Definitely true. There's, there's a, I don't know, it just intuitively makes sense. But on the other side, there's also a logic about why oil wars wouldn't actually pay. And to preview a bit, why we really don't see them. So what are those basic impediments to seizing and exploiting foreign oil that perhaps the El Dorado myth and the Mad Max myth overlook? So both of the oil myths, Mad Max and El Dorado, they emphasize the benefits of acquiring resources. Uh, These are incredibly valuable resources. Mm -hmm. Any country would want to have them. Right. 
what they overlook is the costs. Hmm. And in fact, seizing another country's oil resources and trying to exploit them is a lot more challenging than people tend to recognize. Uh, and so in order to, to break down this argument, I think about four different kinds of costs. Okay. The first of those I call invasion costs. These are the obstacles that arise when one country is actually trying to conquer another one. Usually this consists of damaged oil facilities. Uh, that could be refineries, that could be oil wells, that could be transportation linkage. But war is very destructive and oil infrastructure can be quite vulnerable. So there can be a lot of accidental destruction and there can be deliberate destruction, including by... Both sides, right? <laughs> you can mm -hmm. have... Absolutely. You could have the aggressor destroying the oil facilities to make the defender weaker. We could also have the defender destroying the oil facilities, fearing that the aggressor will be able to take them over and, and exploit them. Exactly. And we've seen historical examples of all of those. Okay. So let's move on to your second category of impediments, and that's occupation obstacles, right? Right. Exactly. So let's say you're a conquering country and you've managed to successfully invade another country. Uh, you now control the country. You theoretically control the territory. Well, now you have to deal with local resistance. And if there's any opposition to your occupation, then that can make it very difficult to exploit oil resources. Uh, this could include insurgent groups who are, say, attacking pipelines or attacking other oil facilities. Uh, it could include strikes at, at oil facilities by local workers who refuse to participate in the industry. And essentially, these occupation obstacles mean that even though a conqueror technically controls oil resources, they can't actually extract them or transport them. So they're not really receiving much benefit. And it would seem that this is much more of a dynamic in general now than it was a few hundred years ago, simply because of the rise of, of nationalism. You could have people who would have been the subject of a resource grab hundreds of years ago, and the outcome of the invasion is simply that they, you know, they still work for the same feudal lord, and that feudal lord reports to a different king, and who really cares? But now there's a sense of nationalism that we will defend this soil, and that probably makes it much more of a factor now than it would have been if oil was something people fought over many centuries ago. Absolutely. And this is one of the interesting things that we, we take these arguments about the value of resource conquest that come from 200, 300 years ago, and we apply them to oil, but we're not thinking about how the international system has changed. And so in some ways, oil is a very unlikely resource for countries to try to grab because the obstacles are so much higher now than they used to be. And those international obstacles are are wider than that aren't they i mean aren't don't we don't we lump in things like sanctions and the the international reaction to an invasion in these costs absolutely so in addition to invasion and occupation costs then if you're a conqueror you have to deal with the international community and the international community is not thrilled about invasions of oil rich territories First, it's obviously a violation of norms against territorial conquest. But in addition, no one wants to see one country uh, consolidate its control over global oil resources. So the international community has a very strong incentive to respond to these acts of aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, that can include diplomatic censure. That can include economic sanctions. 
It can even include the use of military force to try to push the aggressor back into its home territory. Uh, and so collectively, this is another set of responses that might not have been so significant in the 18th century, but can really be a significant impediment now. And I would think the development of international law in the last couple of hundred years plays in here because, yes, you need the nation states to enforce their international agreements, but those norms, some of them have been enshrined in various institutions that make it harder for a would-be oil aggressor to, in a sense, get away with it and get the benefits of it. I mean, as we're seeing now, obviously, some of these norms are perhaps not quite as strong as we all believed and hoped they were. Right. But certainly there's likely to be more resistance. And I think it creates a, a sense among aggressors, too, that they need to justify their aggression. Mm -hmm. uh, they need to say, this is a territory that was previously mine. Here's a reason that I'm doing this in a way that they might not have needed to previously. Interesting. But you don't stop there. You also build in the private sector here, realizing that most countries need the help of at least investors and often international oil companies to to exploit any oil and gas that they seize. How does the how does the investment serve as an obstacle to a traditional oil war? Well, if you're thinking about if you're a conquering country, you've seized foreign oil resources or you've seized contested oil resources, now you need to continue production or maybe you need to, to actually engage in exploration and development. And in order to make that happen, as you mentioned, you're probably going to need foreign help. That could be foreign capital. That could be an international oil company uh, coming in and participating in projects in your conquered territory. And international oil companies tend to be pretty allergic to political instability. Uh, there are some exceptions, but in general, conquered territory is a high-risk environment. The conquest right. might be reversed. Conquerors are not really known for honoring contracts. <laughs> and so as an international oil company, you're really going to hesitate to invest in this kind of territory. And without foreign capital and without foreign technology, the conqueror may have a very difficult time maintaining production mm -hmm. and in particular initiating any new exploration and development. So collectively, if you're a conqueror, you may have destroyed resources when you invaded, you're facing local occupation and resistance, you're facing international censure, sanctions, and possibly military force, and you're having a hard time attracting foreign capital and foreign technological expertise. <laughs> yeah. Those are a lot of hurdles to get over to try to make this act of aggression pay. Well, they are. And you've just set up, Emily, an epic battle. On the one side, You've got long-held beliefs, which resonate in, in pop culture, saying that, of course, there are oil wars. Countries want to seize valuable resources. And what's been more valuable in the last hundred years than, than oil? But that goes up against what you've just laid out as some strong deductive logic and some actual examples, how, how it doesn't hold up. So how does a responsible political scientist like yourself go about investigating this to determine the core truth? You spend a lot of time with data. <laughs> so what I did was I decided to look at all acts of territorial aggression in which countries might have been trying to seize oil or natural gas resources. I started the analysis in 1912. That's the year that uh, Great Britain 
uh, transfers the Royal Navy's primary fuel from coal to oil, at which point oil becomes a strategic resource. Uh, and I end the study in 2010. So this is almost a century's worth of international aggression. Mm -hmm. To identify acts of aggression, I used a, a data set that's popular in international relations. It's called the Militarized Interstate Dispute Data Set. Yep. It looks at acts of aggression by one country against another, ranging in severity from just threats to use force to full-on wars that kill thousands of people. And so I looked at any of these incidents in which territory was a primary aim of the participants. It's about 600 incidents. So then once I had those, I looked to see which of them involved territories that were either known or believed to contain oil or natural gas resources. That's about 180 cases. And so for those 180, I then looked at each of these cases to try to identify why the aggressor had initiated this act of international aggression. What was it trying to achieve? Right. And specifically, how much did oil matter in its decision for international aggression? So there are definitely armed conflicts that come to mind when I think about potential oil wars. So let me bring up a few examples, and you can tell me that popular culture is right, that this is a no kidding, all out oil war, or you can tell me if it represents one of the reasons why people think it's an oil war, but it's not. For me, one of the formative things I looked at back when I was doing international relations stuff was Middle Eastern conflict and Middle Eastern alliances. And a big one before that was the Iran-Iraq war, which took place largely, though not entirely, in the oil producing areas of Iran and Iraq and in the Persian Gulf, which has immense reserves of, of oil and oil transportation infrastructure. So is the Iran-Iraq war in the 1980s an example of an all-out oil war? And if not, why not? So it's not. This was part of the narrative while the war was taking place, was that Iraq had invaded Iran partly to seize its oil resources. And what I argue is that this is one of many cases, most of these 180 cases, where countries are fighting in areas with oil, but they're not really fighting over the oil resources. Or if anything, the oil is, is a tertiary, very small motivation. Okay. And so in this case, yes, Iraq was fighting largely in Iranian territory, in Iran's richest oil province, but Iraq, Iraq's territorial aims in the conflict were actually far more limited. They concerned a certain area around the, the state's international boundary. Uh, it also concerned authority over the waterway that makes up their bilateral boundary. But Iraq repeatedly actually offered to withdraw from the territory that it had seized in Iran if Iran would stop acts of hostility against Iraq. So when I'm looking at this case and seeing that the Iraqis aren't actually trying to hold on to Iranian oil resources, well, this doesn't really seem like a case where they're, they've launched a war in order to grab other, another country's oil. Okay, that, that makes sense. And I would imagine, like, like you said, that many of the examples you found where territory involving oil was related to a conflict that many of these fall into this category of, of red herrings, right? Absolutely. And it's, it's really notable that countries that later fought over territories that had oil and gas had usually already fought over those territories. 
<laughs> before oil and gas discoveries or before oil and gas rumors. Sure. So essentially, these are countries that already don't like each other. And the oil and gas just adds one more issue to disagree about. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, well, let me push you then, because I'm thinking of uh, another international conflict that, that I think moves beyond this, because... As I recall, the war between the United Kingdom and Argentina in the early 1980s didn't have much to do with oil, right? It was the the Argentinian invasion and then the British taking the islands back in, in an actual war. But before that, some five or 10 years earlier, I, I think there was a case where the Argentinians fired on what? I fired on some British ships that were exploring for oil. That that sounds to me like an oil war, but am I right? So it's not. The Falklands War itself, not an oil war, but there was believed to be oil around the islands. It was seen potentially mm -hmm. as a source of tension. Some people even reported that the 1980s conflict was an oil war. It's not. But prior to the war, the UK is actually trying to explore for oil in the region in order to assess the island's economic value. Hmm. And this exploration creates substantial tensions in Argentina because the Argentines believe that this is their territory, this is their oil, the UK sure. should keep their hands off. Mm -hmm. In the process, there's an incident in which the Argentines issue a warning and fire warning shots against the British research ship. Okay. Uh, interestingly, this ship isn't actually exploring for oil. There was a bit of a mistake there. But it is this act of international aggression prompted by a belief that the British are engaged in oil exploration. Mm -hmm. That being said, this incident doesn't really go anywhere. Uh, the British complain, the Argentines complain, but both governments have zero interest in escalating this to the point of a broader conflict. In short, throughout this whole dispute, the island's oil is not considered worth fighting for. It is not worth it to either country. And so I call this an oil spat. <laughs> and we see these incidents periodically. Two countries disagree over ownership of, of a, usually a maritime territory. And one country tries to explore for oil. The other country tries to block it from exploring from oil. Yeah. These tensions flare up. There's a lot of very alarmist reporting saying, oh, God, we're going to have an oil war. And then everything calms down. Because both governments basically say, this is not worth it. We are putting a lid on this. So if you think of confrontations that are related to oil and gas in the South China Sea these days, these are all what I would call oil spats. They're tense at the time, but they're not really particularly dangerous. It really sounds to me like this, this is a case where the logic you laid out earlier really proves itself because 
these are cases where it, it shows that one or both parties, they really do care about oil. It's it's in their consciousness. It's in their strategic decision-making and then their tactical choices deriving therefrom. But when it gets to the point of escalating it to protracted conflict, which would be a war, one or both sides back down, possibly because of these costs you've mentioned. And I was a little surprised by that. Um, yeah. I, I'm not sure I had full confidence in countries acting very rationally. But it's interesting that when it comes to oil and gas, they seem to be able to to do the calculation and figure out that this is this is not worth the effort. Okay. Well, I think I can stump you then because I can think of a couple of cases that I learned about in various levels of schooling where they actually did get into all-out shooting and it, it did involve oil. And I'm thinking here of the Japanese in World War II and the Germans also in World War II because the Japanese did go after the Dutch East Indies and I think parts of what are now Malaysia and Brunei, which had oil and they they needed it for their war effort. And similarly, the Germans not only put some pressure on Romania, which had some oil, but also invaded Russia and made a beeline for the Caucasus, which had the bulk of Russian oil at the time. So these kind of look like oil wars. Explain to me why they're technically not. So first of all, I'm not going to argue with you about whether these were about oil. These acts that you've described, Japan's invasion of the Dutch East Indies, Germany's invasion of especially the USSR, absolutely motivated by oil interests. Both of those countries needed oil. The thing is, they needed the oil because they were already at war. And so this may come across as a technicality, I realize that, but what's really critical about these is that they are campaigns in ongoing wars. In Germany, obviously, the war starts with Germany's invasion of Poland in 1939. Uh, in the Pacific, from the United States' perspective, the war in the Pacific begins December 7th, 1941. Mm -hmm. But from Japan's perspective, they've been at war since 1931. Right. And so both of these countries started their wars for reasons that have pretty much nothing to do with oil. So, But in the course of being at war, the country's oil demand increases, and also their ability to access oil supplies through measures short of conquest really diminishes. Uh, they face sanctions. They have difficulty trying to uh, establish trade agreements. Mm -hmm. Japan is very unsuccessful in its efforts to develop synthetic fuels. And one by one, Germany and Japan, they exhaust every other possible means of acquiring the oil resources that they need in order to continue the wars that they've already started for other reasons. So what I would say is, yes, oil motivated these particular campaigns, but saying that oil motivated a particular campaign is very different from saying oil has the capacity to inspire international wars. The wars started for other reasons. Oil became an issue once they were well underway and in the absence of those larger wars, I don't think that Germany or Japan would have fought for oil. Well, that that does make some sense. And it makes me feel even less optimistic that there are what I would consider oil wars, except for one example. And this is something that seems 
pretty obvious like it is an oil war. So you need to talk me down again. I remember when Iraq invaded Kuwait in 1990, claiming that Kuwait was sucking out oil from the Rumela field, which crossed the border. And Iraq ended up in a matter of weeks, seizing the entire country and taking control of the oil fields after a lot of its bloviating before the war was about OPEC levels and other countries were manipulating the oil price. That does sound superficially like an oil war. Again, if it is, we, 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 found, we found our case. If it's not, I want you to tell me why we shouldn't think of this as a, a case that proves oil wars can and do happen. So this is unquestionably the hard case. Uh, and it is the one out of 180 where I say, yeah, maybe we would call this, this a classic oil war. Mm-hmm. That being said, that story is still really incomplete. We all, like you said, you, you, we all know the story. Saddam says Kuwait is slant drilling into the field, and then he invades and he takes over the country. The thing is, that accusation about slant drilling into the field, Saddam doesn't mention that until two weeks before his invasion. Hmm. And before that, the oil issue in terms of oil fields really, really isn't part of the conversation. And Yes, Saddam did have an interest in controlling Kuwait's oil, but the broader environment in which this is happening is that Saddam was extremely afraid of the United States, Mm -hmm. Uh, that he had nurtured a belief that the United States was out to get him and out to get Iraq. And for him, he and Iraq were the same thing. And that the United States has been opposed to his regime since the 1970s. Uh, He said the U.S. supported the Kurds against Baghdad. Uh, He cited frequently uh, the Iran-Contra scandal, which he called Iran-Gate, as evidence that the United States was out to get him. And after the Iran-Iraq war ends in 1988, Saddam basically saw Iraq as, he thought that Iraq had won, and he saw Iraq as the leader of the Arab world. Uh, He said Egypt, they ceded that position with the Camp David Accords, Iraq has now inherited it. Iraq fought for eight years on behalf of all Arabs. And as a result, he thought Iraq would be targeted by the United States because he believed that the United States was determined to control the Gulf because of its oil and because he just saw the United States as a imperialist nation that was aligned with Israel. So he talks a lot about this imperialist Zionist conspiracy. And he therefore interprets pretty much everything that the United States does from late 1988 until the invasion in 1990 as evidence that the U.S. is determined to remove him from power uh, and destroy him in Iraq. And as a result, he's operating in this, this very paranoid environment. He also thinks that with the end of the Cold War and the demise of the Soviet Union, the U.S. now has a free hand. They can do what they want. And Iraq is the target. And so the U.S. cuts off Iraqi access to U.S. uh, agricultural supplies. That's one blow. The U.S. condemns some of Saddam's rhetoric. The U.S. um, condemns an assassination, all very reasonable things. But he interprets all of this as signs of hostility. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, the oil prices just keep going down. And one of the reasons for this is that Kuwait and the UAE are exceeding their OPEC production quotas. 
And Saddam believes that this is one more instance of the United States' interference. He says, look, Kuwait's small. They wouldn't do this without U.S. support. This is the United States, again, trying to get rid of me. And so he talks with the U.S. about this. He asks for loan forgiveness from Arab states. He tries Mm -hmm. economic reforms. And pretty soon he's convinced that either Iraq and the regime are just going to collapse or we have to take the fight to them. And so he interpreted his invasion of Kuwait as a last ditch effort at survival against a U.S. adversary that was determined to defeat him. Uh, and, and all of this is, is based on research that I did in the Iraqi regime archives. He really saw this as survival, as, as defense through offense. Mm-hmm. Uh, he fully believed that the United States would respond militarily. He was not mistaken about that. But he said, you know, it's better to go down fighting, basically. And so, yes, he was hoping if he seized Kuwait's oil, he could raise oil prices, the regime would survive economically, everything might be okay. But it wasn't an act of naked greed aimed at enhancing Iraq's wealth. It was it was really an act of, of desperation. Okay. You've you've largely convinced me here. I, I remember from my research into the region and then working in the region that, you know, some of the some of the main reasons here had to do with Gulf access, right? Iraq had a very narrow channel down to the Persian Gulf or Arab Gulf. And Kuwait was really crucial to that because of some of the geography and the islands. And certainly Saddam's paranoia, both about Iran and the United States came into play. But I do wonder if there's a bit of a chicken and an egg thing going on here, which came first? Because your logic says, well, Iraq was pretty sure that the United States would intervene militarily if they invaded Kuwait and they didn't want American intervention. They, they, they were fearful of American action. So he went ahead and invaded Kuwait anyway. And then instead of just grabbing the other part of the Rumela field or just grabbing the couple of islands that would expand their access to the Gulf, that Saddam ended up expanding the scope of the invasion, taking over the entire country, thinking somehow that would prevent an American invasion. And I'm just wondering how this works. Is it that this kind of was an oil war because Saddam made it an oil war, hoping that the United States reaction would be different? Walk through that for me. Saddam really hoped that the United States wouldn't respond. He went so far as in in October of 1990, he offered to sell the United States and other countries, Kuwait and Iraq's oil at a $25 per barrel price, uh, said he'd be a reliable supplier, everything would be fine. But the advantage of trying to take the entirety of Kuwait instead of just part of it was that it would make it logistically harder for the United States to respond because Saddam believed that the Saudis would not allow American troops on their soil, Ah. in which case, where do they deploy from exactly if there's nowhere left in Kuwait from which they can launch their their response? So it was was really a pragmatic decision, although it's still still a little ambiguous exactly what was going on in that decision. We don't Mm -hmm. have a perfect understanding. But the belief is that, that he was trying to discourage the United States. Another thing that I think really supports this idea that that the war was not fundamentally about the desire to grab more oil is that 
even after Iraq was forced out of Kuwait, Saddam claimed that he had won. Hmm. He said, I confronted the United States, the world's sole remaining superpower, in what he called the mother of all battles, and he survived. And from his perspective, this was a win. That is a really interesting take, that if it were solely about oil, or even primarily about the actual possession of the oil fields, that it would have been hard for him to claim victory. Of course, the counter-argument is, Maybe it really was about that, but he just didn't want to lose face to his public, to the Iranians, to the Israelis, and to others, and simply lied about it. But you found plenty of evidence talking about the many other factors that went into this other than the oil fields themselves. Well, and also the the evidence that I'm referencing is from internal Iraqi documents and from conversations that Saddam had with his close circle of advisors. It's not public statements. It's statements that he made right. in private or that were published in private documents. So there's not as much of a performative aspect as mm-hmm. there would be, say, in a public speech. Although, interestingly, some other researchers have found that Saddam's public rhetoric and private rhetoric are very similar. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So let's put it this way. Even if you're wrong in some of those interpretations, you still have an N of one of actual oil wars in the nearly 100 year period you're looking at. And most likely, even that one isn't really an oil war. It's more of a, I think a gambit you call it. It's, 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 it's not primarily because of the oil resources. So at worst, you've created, <laughs> you've created a situation where the oil wars myth is almost entirely exploded. And you may have actually, through research, determined that oil wars, the way they're traditionally conceived, literally don't happen. Let's apply this to Russia invading Ukraine, because that argument is out there that Russia, which it's at a time when Russia is trying to finance most of its budget through hydrocarbons, that Russia sees that Ukraine has oil and gas and it can go across and grab them. Why do you think that the logic of the Russian invasion of Ukraine this year is an oil war? Why why do you think that does or doesn't hold water? So I think my my reasons fall into both how the war has been prosecuted and also the logic of it. So first of all, Ukraine's natural gas reserves are about 3% of Russia's natural gas reserves. Oil, also a small percentage. So we're, we're just not looking at huge amounts of natural resources relative to Russia's own domestic endowments. In addition, the areas that, that Russia has really focused on geographically in its campaign have not really been the areas that have the most oil and natural gas. Those areas are the Kharkiv and Poltava provinces, and Mm -hmm. that hasn't been the focal point of Russia's campaign. So if they're trying to seize oil and gas, they're doing it in a very strange way. Crimea, the Black Sea continental shelf, those have 6% of Ukraine's natural gas resources. So again, it, it doesn't make sense geographically. But in addition, if Russia is trying to benefit economically from seizing Ukraine's oil and gas. It is doing a terrible job. At this point, because of international sanctions, 
Russia is having a hard time selling its own oil. Right. Uh, it's having to offer oil at a significant discount because it's having a hard time finding buyers. It's actually shutting in its own production. And as a result, Russia's own oil output is actually declining. So mm -hmm. rather than, and, and it's unlikely that this will change anytime soon. Uh, it's also going to be very hard for Russia to attract international investment right. because of sanctions. And again, because it doesn't seem like a reliable place to invest. So it's facing international obstacles. It's facing investment obstacles. Certainly, if Russia were actually to gain control over Ukrainian facilities uh, and we saw a prolonged occupation, I can imagine a lot of attempts to target the oil industry that Russia is trying to exploit. Mm -hmm. Even as it is, we're seeing Ukraine now shifting the movement of gas supplies. Uh, mm -hmm. It's declared force majeure over the gas transit system. So clearly the country is already willing to interfere with that process some. And obviously the invasion has been quite destructive. It has targeted a number of Ukrainian oil facilities. So Russia is not benefiting from an oil and gas perspective from this invasion. Mm -hmm. And it's actually even worse off than it was before it invaded. So I have a hard time thinking of this as an oil war, or if it is, Putin has made an incredibly severe miscalculation. And I really don't think that was the motive. It sure seems like the oil war narrative that some people have put out there in the public discourse that, I don't know, it, it almost seems to me like it's a way of imposing order on a chaotic situation because all of us can imagine, you know, those people have something I want and oil is a valuable resource. And with oil and gas deposits close to the border, you could understand a country, you may not agree with it but you could understand a country invading a neighbor to get that good stuff that would make us richer. That has some fundamental truthiness to it, but it's also sadly a way of perhaps ignoring or downplaying the, the darker reasons for such aggression. And consciously or not, it may be a way of excusing Russian behavior and some of the other reasons that Russia is doing it, hoping that the logic of oil and gas just make more sense to people. And they might not like it, but they'll nod and say, okay, I understand that. And they don't have to come to grips with the darker reality. I think one thing that I've, I've really found through this research is, is how much politics matters in explaining international aggression. That we intuitively think, as you said, that people want to seize things. but And we understand need as a motive and we understand greed as a motive I think we have a much harder time wrapping our heads around prestige as a motive and mm -hmm. prestige and honor and reputation and status. But I think it becomes very difficult to explain a lot of these, these acts of international aggression without incorporating those factors. And, and as you said, there's a real appeal to simple explanations that seem intuitively compelling to us, but Turning to oil to explain wars, first, we get it wrong, mm -hmm. but also we overlook the actual causes, and I think we can sometimes let some people off the hook. Well, this has been a fascinating look at the actual facts behind claims of oil wars. Emily, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. It's my pleasure to be here. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation 
with the Brookings Institution, check out our written work at lawfareblog.com, buy Lawfare swag at thelawfarestore.com, and remember, you can get ad-free versions of this and other Lawfare podcasts by becoming a Lawfare material supporter at patreon.com lawfare. You'll also get access to special events and other content available only to our supporters. Please remember to rate and review us where you find our podcasts and check out our others like Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare Noble, and our special series like The Aftermath and Allies. This episode was edited by Jen Pacha Howell. Your audio engineer is Megan Nadalski of Goat Rodeo Studios. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. As always, thank you for listening.